Now, one of the things I appreciate about the podcast is they, Mike Cosper, who hosts the podcast, he doesn't take this and, and, and throw Driscoll or the leadership or the church under the bus. I don't feel that. Um, but rather, he, he offers this story as a cautionary tale, is the way I describe it. Now, I will tell you, because if you go jump out there and start listening to it, or, or you know, if, if you're, if many, if you've just, you know, kind of kept your eye on evangelicalism, it's hard to have missed Mars Hill as a church, but some of you perhaps have. But if you begin to listen to it, I will warn you, it's, it's brutally honest. It, it's, it's hard to hear sometimes. Um, but but, but they, they didn't throw Driscoll or the leadership under the bus. In fact, Cosper always invites us uh, not to look down our nose, but to look in the mirror. Like any church, Fellowship Bible Church, Franklin, Brentwood, you know, us, um, we have been through some challenges and some crises. And some of those were out, totally out of our control at, at, at one level. And, and others were self, you know, self-inflicted wounds that, that we all go through as a community of faith. And, and yet in God's great kindness and mercy, y'all, I'm standing here, you're here. We are gathered in these two congregations today. Um, the Lord has been so gracious to us, in us and through us. And, and I'm so thankful you know, we're, we're a broken people. You know, I know you know that, but I'll remind you, we're all broken and we're finding wholehearted life in Jesus. And we're trying to help other people find wholehearted life in Christ. But we're always just a hair's breadth away from not being. Now, you, and you go, that's crazy. I mean, we're gonna, no, we're just a hair's breadth away from, from, you know what? There was this church called Fellowship Bible Church and it is no more. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. Um, we could become a, a cautionary tale. Um, and while the collapse, you know, often these collapses, they seem sudden because that one certainly seemed sudden and it, it was quite abrupt. Um, they're never just sudden. What, what's true is that there, there would be things under the waterline, not above the waterline, but under the waterline that would be present, y'all, for years, okay? But above the waterline, you know what's above the waterline? People, money, and buildings. It all looks good, and I'm saying that about us. But then underneath here, it's like, mm. And so it seems sudden when it goes, but it isn't. And the sobering reality is the root cause is never out there. I mean, think of the church in China, it just dawns on me. I mean, if you wanted to have a, a power out there to crush the church, surely that would crush it. No, 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 no. Because something out there can't crush the church. It's not what'll be done to the church, it's what the church does to itself. Paul is not concerned here with, you know, with what the government's gonna do to, to, to the little church in Philippi. He's not, he's not concerned with <clears throat> what the world's influence is gonna be on the church. It's gonna, no, he's not concerned with that. He's got a deeper concern that's, that's sobering. And in the letter to the Philippians, it's hard to miss. It's not even implied, it's explicit. Now, when you have, if you have your booklets, you know, or, or your Bible, like I kinda, you, know, you might wanna keep your booklet with you sometimes because if it's in your car, I'm telling you, you have a few minutes, you can pull it out. It'll take you 12 minutes to read the book of Philippians. And my encouragement to you is just read it. Just keep reading it 
Because if you'll keep reading it, then when we study a particular passage, I'm telling you, you will have so much context for the passage itself. And if you just keep reading the book, it's hard to miss this. You know, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't hint at it. He just point blank tells us, chapter four, verse two, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to get along. <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, they weren't getting along, okay? In chapter two, verse 14, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why, why did he do that? I mean, did he just say, you know, I, I wanna make sure they don't get into grumbling. No, because they're grumbling and disputing. Because today in our passage, two, chapter two, verse three, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit or empty conceit. Why? Because they're doing things out of selfish ambition and conceit. These are, these, are not, these are not potential threats. These are present realities in this 10-year-old church at Philippi, in a word, disunity is afoot in this little congregation. And I guarantee you it was a third of the size of this room right now, but there was disunity amongst uh, the people. What a timely word. I'm so grateful we're in the book of Philippians. And I, I wasn't expecting this from Philippians. I, I gotta be honest with you. I was thinking, man, let's do a happy book, <laughs> joy. <laughs> and it is, it is, it's the truest joy and happiness. But my goodness, this is a concern for Paul. Um, the, 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 you know, Rob and I've said this and I'll continue to say it, you know, and in my years of being in church and around church, I've not experienced the, the, the level of schism within churches, the church global, and, and within the, ch the church, us, in the, you know, within fellowship. It's profound what some of the cultural issues have pressed upon us. And the truth of the matter is, you know what's coming out of us? You know what's coming out of us because of the way we deal with COVID or the day we, we deal with politics? You know what? You know what's coming out of us? What's always been in us? <laughs> you know, it's not like it, it's just coming out. You know, that's bringing it out. So... I pray we will not just hear Paul's words, but truly, as we always hope, is we'll act on it. And we'll do something at the end of the service that invites you to, to, to act on the, the text today and what it means for us. Now, Philippians, if you're not there, go there in your booklet, uh, Philippians chapter two, we're in verses one to four, so we're picking up a, a new chapter. Um, this, these verses, you all, are one sentence in the Greek. Just, it's just one long sentence. And in the Greek, you know, I, I, I couldn't read it. I mean, it's just, there's no capitalization. There's no punctuation. There's no dashes. There's no paragraph indentations. There's no exclamation marks. You know, it's all done by word order and, and it's one long sentence. And so you go, gosh, it's hard to unpack. Now the translation here helps us, but it can still be hidden even within um, our, 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 our text. And what we're gonna find is, the, the, the one long sentence is gonna, everything's gonna, all the weight's gonna go down to this one word when we get to the end. This one word is kryptonite to disunity. Kryptonite to disunity if we choose to live it. So look at your Bibles. Our text, two, one through four, four verses, but let me just jump to this because I wanna help you see that, that, the, that the sentence is an if-then statement. That's what the whole paragraph is. I'll, I'll add this. It's if-then and here's how. 
okay? So there's the, the outline of the, 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 the structure. If you look at the four verses, I wanna take you, just so you see it, I wanna take you to the then, because it's the one command in the passage. So when you read through here, you go, well, he tells you to do this, do this. Well, there's one main verb, one main command. You know, in, in, in theological terms, we'd say it's the imperative because it's the imperative tense. This is a command of Paul. And you'll see it there in verse two. You might mark it in your Bibles. Complete my joy. There you go. That's the one command in the whole sentence. So when you look at your Bible and you go, okay, if that's the then, then what's above it, okay? Verse one, that's the if. What's below it and what follows after complete my joy, just know this, all of that is the how. Everybody kind of got that in their head? If, if this, then this, here's how. And that's the way the passage, passage flows out. Complete my joy. Joy. I'm going to start there. I said it's an active imperative mood. It's a command. It's the only command in the passage. Um, the when we when we when we look at the command and we go to the actually I want to jump up when we go to the the if statements. It's when we read it in the English. It's like well, if these things are true, i.e., they may not be true. The if there is a Greek first-class condition. And so most of the time, not always, most of the times a Greek first-class condition should be translated since, because, okay? Now, I say most of the times because sometimes it's not. You have to look at the context to go, is this a first-class condition that is a since? And by the way, if you have the NIV, you have some other translations, it'll read because or since this is true. And I would suggest that is what it ought to be translated as. Not as a question, but actually as a statement of reality. Because this is true. And the reason I say that is it's a first class condition and the context. He's writing to those who are citizens of the kingdom. He's writing to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so what Paul is doing here is he is using a rhetorical device to, to get the Philippians to, to dialogue with him, to engage with him. Philippians, y'all, is one of the most personal letters Paul writes. And you say, well, they're all personal. Well, not to the level of Philippians. He had a very unique relationship with them. This is a very impassioned plea and it comes out all different places throughout the letter. And so when he says, if this is true, if this is true, it would be like me, let me put it this way in a way that, that might help us. If I wanted my kids to do something or if I was gonna command them, you know, I'm gonna say, you need to do this. It would be me saying to my kids, y'all, if you grew up with a roof over your head and if you had food on the table and you've had clothes to wear, and, and you felt your mom and dad really love you. See, when I say it that way, what are my kids, what, what are my kids doing? Well, they have to be going, yes, 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 and yes. See, that, so now my kids are in a position not to be manipulated, but to recognize this is true. And that's what Paul's doing here. So, so if I, ref, let me reframe it, okay? Because it says if in our text, but truly the statement is a 
because of this, do this, and here's how. So it's really a since, then, here's how. Is everybody with me so far? So what does he say? He says, because these things are true, what? Encouragement in Christ. It's because... Because you have been emboldened in your suffering, that's the context, you know, of the letter. He's coming out of suffer, we suffer for Christ. If you've been emboldened when you've been suffering by by Christ, yes, that's true. Um, Because there's comfort from love, uh, you've been comforted in love, love, agape love, God's love, love that is an act of the will for the good of another at great cost to yourself. Because that's true and, and, and you've experienced the love of the Father, and then he says, because you've participated in the spirit, what do you mean participated in the spirit? The idea is you've experienced the one body of Christ because you've experienced what it is to be in relationship, not just with your father, but the spirit has put you in the body and you're connected to others who know Christ. And the last reality is if you've experienced, if there's been affection and sympathy, since there have been affection and sympathy, it's called a hendiadis. It's two words that are getting at one idea. Since you've, you've, you've felt God's tenderness and, and there's no denying it, see? And at this point, so the Philippians recognize this is, this is who we are. By the way, Rob did such a great job of this last week when he talked about our being and our doing. Do you remember that? Let me frame it another way as I'm doing it in here. The New Testament model the pattern of the New Testament is uh, indicative and then imperative. And you go, well, what, what do those words mean? Well, in, 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 the, in the Greek, the indicative is the, is the sense of being. It, it, it's the reality, the indicative, identity. Remember, Rob used that word. So always remember this, indicative, then imperative. Imperative is the command. And so y'all, Rob said it this way, you know, the Christian life is our, is our doing catching up with our already being. It's so important that we remember when, when we hear these commands of God, and Paul's got a command here, that the, the commands are never, you need to do this in order to become this or be this. No, it's always, you are this, you are this. Therefore, express that. That's the Christian life. Now, since this is true, complete my joy. There's the command. To, what's the idea here? It's to, it's to make, make full my joy. In fact, make it full to overflowing. Joy's present. This is so important. Um, it's not like Paul's not joyful because we already know he is, right? We've, we've come this far in the letter and we recognize that while he's been in jail for four years, chained to a Roman guard, he said, in this, in my imprisonment, in people doing things they, you know, to make harm me, I rejoice. And then you remember he, in, that, in that transition, he said, and I will rejoice. So he looked to his future and he could go, I don't know if I'm gonna die tomorrow, but I will rejoice. So he's got present joy. He's got future joy, you know, in his presence. We talked, present time, we talked about that. And yet he would say, complete my joy. There, Make my joy overflow. And I really, I'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute, but it's really changed my understanding of biblical joy. And I'm gonna retract some statements I've made in the past. What I find 
crazy in this is that he ties this overflowing joy to their obedience, which is not how I've always thought about joy. I'll unpack that a little bit later. I just want you to note, note that, but I'll say, what is, what is this completion of joy? Where do we see it elsewhere? John chapter three, verse 29, uh, John the Baptist disciples come to him and they're looking at Jesus and it's like Jesus has become more popular than John the Baptist. And, and so John the Baptist's disciples come to him and say, I mean, he's got more people than you. He's doing better than you. He's moving ahead of you, John. And what's John's response? He says this, verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. What? John, wait, so... Jesus's success has made, has added to your joy, has brought fullness to overflowing to your joy? Yes. I wrote a note to myself in my notes when I was studying this and I went, how much joy do I leave on the table every day? Well, where joy is present, the implication is there's room for more joy. Now, why would that be? Well, let me suggest this. The source of joy is Jesus. That source is unlimited, unlimited. In our fallenness, we can have joy, but may I say this? There's always more that'll come. There's always more to be had. The fullness of which we won't know until that day we see him face to face. And so there's a sense to which you and I, we, we, you know, our joy can be untouched regardless of circumstances. There's a sense to which you and I can put a governor on each other's joy. That's pretty sobering. I'll talk about it when we get to our application. Okay, so he says, because this is true, complete my joy. Stop right there. I honestly read that and went, there's a part of that that feels a little self-serving. Well, what, what are you, why, you're commanding me to make you happier? <laughs> In a way, you know, it's kind of like, what? Mm, well, there's an answer to that too. I'm gonna backload it and, and kind of take that whole thing together in a moment. Let me get through this last part. Since this is true, then complete my joy, here's how. And now we pick up here in verse two, the back end, the second half of that, complete my joy, how, by, how. Being of the same mind, this idea is, is not think the same thoughts. In fact, mind here is not just intellect, it is the whole of your being. I love this because it reinforces our commitment to wholehearted because when he speaks of mind, which he will speak about five times in the letter, it's always not just think these thoughts, it is may your emotions and your desires, your whole being be aligned. So it's not just an intellectual exercise, it's as we would say, wholehearted. Some say see a worldview in this. Be of the same you know, worldview. Then he says, having the same love. Love is agape here. So it is that unconditional act of the will for the good and the, um, at great cost to yourself. It, it, it is the love of, it is the, 
mind of Christ being of the same mind. It is having the same love, the love of, of, of God the Father. It is being in full accord. It's an interesting word that the Greek literally means be same souled, S-O-U-L-E-D. It's to be so united of heart, we would say, be same souled. And then he comes back and uses this word mind again, but this time he says, and be of one mind. So be of the same mind. Look, just be of one mind. We don't need to, we don't need to get too in the weeds on these two, like, like the exact nature of each, but it's a, it's a bit of an overlap. But, but most would see this second be of, uh, of one mind as being be of one purpose. So, so it's, you know, have the same mindset, if you will, whole, the whole, whole of who you are, and may that whole of who you are be on the same purpose. So, so all of us look to the same thing, be about the same purpose in our life. You could say it's have the same goal. Then he says, note, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, earlier in the letter, he said, there are some here in, in, in the, the guard who are Christians and they're sharing Christ out of selfish ambition. And I'm sure when they read that, they said, man, they shouldn't be doing that. And now Paul comes around and looks at them and says, you guys don't, stop doing stuff out of selfish ambition. They're doing the same thing. Conceit is, it's two Greek words. It's empty glory. You know, it's you do things so that people see you. Like you you get raised up and they're like, wow. But you know what's behind that? Nothing, because you did it so that you would be seen. And then he says this, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. We need to pause here. This word humility in this text, that Greek word, you can't find it in any of the Greek literature of the day. So that's, a, that's, a, that's interesting. Okay, so we go, okay, so Paul, in a sense, creates a word here, in, in humility. And part of it may perhaps be this, in that day, you all, um, humility was to be debased and demeaning. So, so, you know, we're here in, you know, 2021. If you go back to, you know, 60, 80, 80, 70 AD, in that day and in that culture, humility was not a virtue. It, it was, it's like, ew, it's to be avoided. One scholar said there was virtually no difference between humility and humiliation. Okay, so today, honestly, you know, I think today, you know, you think about humility and it's like a, we, we, we honor that in people. Not in that day. Humility is one of those character traits that's difficult to pin down it's difficult to recognize in a sense in yourself because like when you, when you say I'm humble, right? Everyone around you goes, well, you're not. And I was like, oh gosh, you know, but then, but then there's that false humility. And I truly, I, I, I can go here where, where you diminish your achievements or, or you diminish things so that, so that people are, you know, you, you make it look like, ah, that, I, you know, someone says that was very good or I appreciate what you do about this. You go, well, I'm not very good. And the whole reason, you know, the whole reason is because when you diminish yourself in that way, then it makes your achievement even better. So it's kind of a backhanded pride, you know, with, with um, false humility. And, and I, I tell you, I can certainly be guilty of that. 
Um, here's the key to, to humility biblically. It, it's not to think less of yourself. You know, you've heard it said it's to think rightly of yourself and that's, that's very true. Let me go a step further and, and, and tell you what that rightly, what rightly thinking of yourself entails. It entails seeing yourself in relation to God. That's, that's to be humble. That's to, to, to gain humility is to see yourself, but to see yourself in relation to God. Now, now here's what happens when we do this honestly. Two things happen at the same time. I see myself in relation to God and suddenly I recognize he is high and holy and lifted up and I am lowly. So I see my, I see my lowliness, not a debasing lowliness, but here's the, here's the bottom line. I'm not God and he is. Second thing that happens is when we see ourselves in relation to God, we recognize that we are made in the image of God. And therefore we recognize in, in his image, we are of great eternal value and worth. You see that? So you can hold those two things together and that's humility. When we do that, um, I will say this, when we're in, you'll know you're walking in humility uh, when, when you're with others and you're not walking in front of them or behind them, uh, you're, not, you're not stepping on them to make yourself look better. You're not you know, kind of getting them down so you look better. The truth is you're walking with someone and your predisposition is this. How do I lift this person up? And, and when we, we're in humility, to lift that person up does not make us lower. Do you see that? It's, it's, it's to reflect God is what Christ is, to lift those around him up. That would be to walk in, in humility. Now, I love this quote. I'll just read it to you. Um, you know, I'll read commentaries on studying and every once in a while you'll find a quote that's in, every third commentary because it was just the right one by some scholar. This is Marcus Bachmuel. He wrote this about humility. The biblical view of humility is precisely not feigned or groveling, nor a sanctimonious or pathetic lack of self-esteem, but rather a mark of moral strength and integrity. Then he says this, it involves an unadorned acknowledgement of one's own creaturely inadequacies. I love that phrase. Creature, just, we're creatures, creaturely inadequacies. And entrusting one's fortunes to God rather than to one's own abilities or resources. A, an awareness of creaturely inadequacies while entrusting fortune or entrusting wherever this goes, wherever I land, while I own my own inadequacies, wherever this takes me as I lift this other person up, whatever that means for me, that's in God's hands. There's humility. He says this, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What does it mean to count others more significant than yourselves? I think verse four unpacks that a bit farther. It, it is what we talked about two weeks ago when we noted Paul said 
You know, we're to walk in a manner that we're looking out to help other people's progress in faith and in joy. What does it mean to look out for the interests of others? To look out for their progress in faith, not just my own. Let me offer one takeaway and one application. Here's the takeaway. There is a fullness to joy that we often forfeit. There is a fullness to joy that we often forfeit. I'm going back to my comment that how much joy do I leave on the table? I've often said this, and here's where I'm backtracking, okay? So, you know, how much stuff, I'll probably be backtracking the rest of my life because you, you change, you know, I don't think that's right what I said a year ago or whatever. But, you know, I've always said this, and there's a sense to which this is true. Joy is unaffected by circumstances. There's a, there's a, that is, part of that is true, that biblical joy, you see, is rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in Christ. It's rooted in eternal realities. And there's a sense to which Paul, he's in jail and he says, I have joy. So yes, that's true. There's a sense to which joy is unconnected from your circumstances in life. That's what's the difference between biblical joy and human happiness, you know, that's all about how things are going. And yet, he clearly ties the fullness of his joy to their obedience. So I go, oh my goodness. It, it wouldn't be a true statement to say biblical joy is totally unconnected to circumstances. Because Paul is clearly saying here, there's more joy to be had, but it depends on your obedience. Now think about this. Paul's saying his overflowing of joy is tied to their obedience. It's, it's this, can I say it this way? My joy, my overflowing of joy cannot be separated from your following of Jesus with your whole heart and your joy, if we're truly in the body together, is tied to my following Jesus with my whole heart. How about that? It just kind of connects us in a way that we sometimes don't want to be connected. <laughs> like, I don't want to be connected to that. I want, I want my fullness of joy to come from what I do. I want to be in control of it. Well, we're not. You know, we are, a, we are Westerners in, in the United States. Um, this, this culture and more of an, of an Eastern culture um, it's not so heavily weighted to personal faith. It is important to know that our faith is personal. You gotta personally put your trust in Christ. But oftentimes we build this wall around personal and we're all on our own. It's kind of that Western mindset. It's, all, it's, it's my faith. Look, it doesn't have to do with you. Well, the truth of the matter is the Bible's so clear we're a body. And when the one part of the body suffers, the whole suffers. How can that be? Well, because we're a body. And one rejoices, the other rejoices. And, I, and I'm saying this to say, when it comes to joy, how we live our lives affects other people's joy, the governor on their joy. Am I, are you guys with me on this? I'm not saying it affects, you can still have joy, but there's more, but we put a governor on it. And so the fullness of joy actually comes within the context of community, which... You know, I've, I've been saying this over this message to say, you know, there are, I get it that the church hurts people. I get it. I've harmed people, hurt people. You get a bad taste in your mouth from Christianity, but it's so common for us to go and many, for many of us to go, you know, I'm done with church. Look, I love Jesus. Hey, I'm walking with Jesus. I've never been closer to Jesus, but no, I don't wanna go to church. 
no, I don't wanna be connected to that body. I'm telling you, and I'm not saying this because I'm a pastor, I'm telling you this because I believe that Paul says it. He, that thought would be so foreign to the apostle Paul that you could take your Christianity and kind of go do it on your own. That's not what the Bible describes as our faith is, quite frankly. So I think we leave joy on the table oftentimes when we're not connected in the community of, of, of fellowship, of the participation in the gospel. How about the application? Well, here's the application. I'm gonna give you, I wanna, I'm gonna give you an illustration and then we're gonna apply it. Now, this illustration takes me to an arena that I am so unfamiliar with. And yet I've, I've, I know just enough to give you a picture of something. And I'm only giving you this picture because I think it can help us in the application. So you talk about something I don't know anything about, neuroscience. <laughs> but I'm gonna go there. There's these things in our body, in our, you know, our nerves called synapses. And so the way God designed our body, and some of you are nurses and doctors, you guys know this, is that when, when I, you know, what I just did just then, I picked up this book, that had, to, that had to start in my physical brain, but then it had to get all the way down to pick up the book and hold it up. See, it had to go all that way. Now, the way it gets there is through these things called synapses, and what are those? Well, our nerve endings, they don't all touch. They don't touch and overlap. Our nerve endings all have this gap between them. So here's an... Here, Here's a nerve going this way and it's going that way, but there's a, there's, a, there's a gap right here. Everybody with me? This little gap right here between these nerve endings is called a synapse. And so what I just did to do that, it had, to, had a nerve, it, it, it had to go from my brain through these, all these different synapses and connect all the way to put my hand and pick it up. It happens instantaneously. Well, that gap in the body is between all these nerve endings, it's, it's, it's called a synaptic gap and the, it's gotta be bridged either by electrical current or chemical. Now I became familiar with this when, it, it, one of my, when I was in a depression, one of the depressions I was in and I, I learned you know, that the brain has these synapses and often when you get depressed, there's a chemical reality that the, the chemical that makes those things jump, you know, makes the, the charges jump, gets depleted. And so some medicine can help bring that up. Okay, well, why'd you do all that? Because it's like this. Paul says, make my joy complete. Okay, here's, here it goes. And then there's this gap because it's gotta go here so that it goes all the way to the people being of the same mind, okay? All, all the things he said, here's how. That gap is not chemical or electric. I wanna suggest that in the spiritual realm, the gap is bridged by humility. Lack of humility, disunity, dysfunction. And so our invitation today is to go to this word, which I said earlier, there was a word that's kryptonite to disunity. You'll never guess what it is. Humility, humility. I said earlier that Paul has you know, commanded us to complete his joy. And I said, is that selfish? Well, no, it's, it's not. Because in that command, he knows that, in, that our humility in, in living out our identity in Christ is our own path to joy. Are you with me? 
It's our own path to joy. So Paul is saying, yes, complete my joy. But he knows if we will walk in this way, our own joy is completed. And so Paul is, you know, so brilliantly in the power of the spirit, he's, he said to us, um, I command you to do this. And he, and he didn't have to say, because it's for your own good, you know, but it is, and it always is. And may I say this, in, in that command, and I said, he says, and, you know, to be of one mind, to be of one person, one goal. May I say this, the goal that I want everybody to look at is not unity. Please hear me. I'm not calling you up here, go look. Everybody put their eye on unity and let's get it. No. There's but one goal in the Christian life. And that's Jesus. So the invitation is always, let's go after Jesus. Let's follow Jesus with our whole heart and all that we are. Let's help other people follow Jesus. Let's go there. And you know what happens as we go there? Unity. Luke, you should be up here teaching this because you're answering every question. Unity. Do you see that? Follow Jesus with your whole heart. Unity. And so what, he's, what has he done? He said to us, oh, there's disunity afoot. This is so crazy. I'm gonna frame it a different way. There's disunity afoot. But can I tell you, if you'll pursue joy, it'll take care of it. Now, what do I, what do I mean when I say pursue joy? Really, if you'll pursue Jesus, you see that disunity will be dealt with. So let me ask you to stand. Would you stand? And here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna sing a song. It's very intentional what we're singing. We're singing a song Brian Yakabowski wrote, and it's called... Bring it all to the altar. And I'm gonna ask you to do that. Now, you don't have to come down here to these altars, but some of you may feel led to and do. You have to step out of the aisle. You have to walk down here and get on your knees because what I'm, the application I'm inviting you to is you can't fix all, you can't fix, you know, you, you can't fix disunity, but I'll tell you what we can do is by the power of the spirit, we can humble ourselves and can bring ourselves before the Father and pray for humility in our own life. Whatever that means, Lord, whatever that looks like in my life. I'll tell you this, all, every time I teach a message and it's got unity of the body in it, it's hard for me. And here's why. And I've said this to you before, but I, I just think it bears reminding. Y'all, I've got a trail of broken relationships in my world. Strained relationships, they're not right. I don't know that they ever will be, you know? And so then I read this and I go, Lloyd, how can you stand up there and call people to unity and you don't even have it? I go, I know, I know, <laughs> what do I do? Well, I'll tell you what I do. I say, Lord, I bring myself to you in humility. And I'm gonna trust you'll do what you will do and can only do in the relationships in my life. That's the invitation today, y'all. That's the invitation for us. That's the application. So let's sing this song. And as we sing, I'm gonna invite you. Some of you can come up here. Some of you may wanna sit where you are. Some of you may wanna kneel, whatever you feel the Lord leading you to do. But let's bring it to the altar and let's bring ourselves I'll tell you what I'm doing in these moments. I'm praying, Lord, 
may I bring in the power of the Spirit humility right here. And you do what only you can do in my heart and the heart of others. Let's sing and let's pray.